You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. I uh, want to welcome you to uh, this really great week that you have ahead of you. I know this is a week that many of you have been making many preparations for, have been making reservations, have been inviting friends and family to get together for the thing that's on top of all of our minds this week, the World Cup. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Although it does start today, and this Friday... United States of America will take on the greatest soccer team in the tournament, England. Who said Brazil? I heard that. (laughs) And so uh, I apologize ahead of time for any pain that England may cause you during your uh, Thanksgiving break this week. Uh, But we are going to get a chance to uh, talk about uh, Thanksgiving a little bit today and uh, what it's like to be at the Thanksgiving table, and not only for ourselves, but we're going to look at Scripture and how Jesus dealt with a particular Thanksgiving table of his own at the Lord's Supper. The Last Supper, there's a time where he's with his disciples and gives thanks And we're going to uh, spend some time just kind of looking at that. And I know all jokes aside that uh, this has been a a week where you do have preparations to make and you have been out shopping for your your turkey or your chicken or your duck or your chicken turkey duck. And, uh, you know, and you guys have been making plans to have a good time. And, And, you know, it wasn't really any different in the story when Jesus sends his disciples to prepare this particular meal in Mark 14, verse 12 to 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So just that that little verse at the end that just says they prepared the Passover has a lot of detail that's missing from it. So a, a Jewish Passover meal had very specific instructions in how food was to be prepared, how a lamb was to be selected, how it was to be cooked, how it was to be presented. Uh, We have very specific details on how the bread should be cooked and how the herbs should be mixed. And we won't go into all of those details today, but when it says that they prepared the Passover, it took some time. And I know for a lot of us, it's the same way when we prepare our own uh, special meals, whether that for you is Thanksgiving or Christmas or some other time, there's time and effort that goes into it. Um, But what we're going to focus on today is not necessarily the details of the Passover meal, but firstly, who was at 
the Passover meal, who was at this Thanksgiving table when Jesus ate of this meal. And it tells us in verse 17, it's very clear, when it was evening, he came with the 12, and they were reclining at the table and eating. This is the 12 disciples. So I want to do a little uh, recap here on on who the 12 disciples were, who he was sitting at during this meal. And and it might bring to mind for some of us, some of the, the people that you may have coming to your table this coming week. And some of the uh, grace and patience, perhaps, that may be required from us. You know, perhaps you have that aunt that comes and just shares a little too much at the table. Maybe you have an uncle that's coming that just drinks a little too much. A grandmother that is just a little too grumpy. And it is a time of thanksgiving, but as you think about it today, you're already losing patience just at the thought of what the table is going to look like in four days' time. Not the case in my household at all. Not one little bit. Not going to go there. (laughs) Emma's mum and dad are sitting right in front of me over here, and so... We're going to continue to move on, but I know this is true because Google told me. I saw some articles this week, uh, one uh, being the six top tips for Thanksgiving with a difficult family. One of the uh, uh, tips on here was to avoid politics. Another was to avoid booze, and I think those are both great suggestions. Uh, Another article I read was called The Great Escape. Eight ways to ditch your family this Thanksgiving, <laughs> which included getting out in time to purchase that special Sonic Care toothbrush that is going on sale on Black Friday that you've been wanting forever and you cannot miss that deal. This is not good. So let's take a look at the, uh, at the, uh, the people that Jesus had at, at his table. Okay, so first of all, we're going to start. I'm going to lay this name place for Peter. We talked about Peter a lot last time that I got to stand here with you and and just known that he was a disciple that was inconsistent. We talked about this, that he would be one moment walking on water, the next moment he's sinking. One moment he is pledging his allegiance to doing things however Jesus tells him and the next is swiping a sword at a soldier and cutting off his ear. He's just an inconsistent disciple. Um, We see next here we have Andrew. Okay, now Andrew, his name literally means manly. Anyone know someone called Andrew? Are they manly? No, don't tell me if they're manly. But his name literally means manly, yet he is one of the first disciples to desert Jesus at the trial and crucifixion. And here he is sitting at the table, old manly Andrew, that runs away. And, you know, also, so did Judas. This is not Judas Iscariot. There were two disciples named Judas. This is the other one. He deserted Jesus, and so did his own brother, his own flesh and blood, or half-brother, James, deserted him at the crucifixion. Next up here, we have John. I'm going to place John at a place that the Bible 
describes him as uh, sitting on the right-hand side of Jesus because this is where he uh, lays on the chest of Jesus. And uh, John was a great disciple. We see lots of great stories about him, but here's one that that points out a different characteristic about him in Luke 9, verse 54. But the people did not receive Jesus because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, this is a big extreme from they're not receiving you how we think they should to let's destroy them completely. You know, this ruthless attitude, this kind of extreme attitude. And I don't know if you have friends or family or neighbors that are like this. They go from one extreme to the other very fast. Jesus had to deal with this at his table. Next, we see uh, Philip. Okay, Philip was, um, I would say, maybe pessimistic. He liked to see things as half empty instead of half full. We see this in John 6 when it says that he was lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. Why would he need to test him? Well, let's find out. For he himself knew what he would do. But Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little. And here he is just looking at this huge uh, problem that is coming towards them and sees this as an impossibility. As I don't know what we're going to do here. And we might call him pessimistic. We might call him cynical. We might call him glass half empty. But you might have people in your life who are like that. Next up we have Nathan, Nathaniel. And uh, we're going to read out of uh, the book of John and learn a little bit about Nathaniel. But he does have a nickname, Negative Nathan. Negative Nathan, we see, is quite judgmental here in John 1 verse 43. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Philip. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We have found the Messiah. Come and see him. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's skeptical. You know, he's judgmental. He's making a decision on what he believes could actually be true based on the geography of a person. And you might know people that are like that that are in your life. People who are just, by default, they're judgmental and skeptical and it takes convincing before they will actually understand and listen to to you. Um, Next up we have uh, Matthew. I'm going to put Matthew right here on the, the end of the table near the bread because... He was known as being quite greedy. Okay, Matthew was a tax collector uh, before he was a disciple. And uh, not only was he a tax collector, he was the worst kind of tax collector. And you say, is is there one worse than the other? Because they all seem bad to me. Well, there were two kinds of tax collectors, it seems in Scripture, that one that would have a, a limit they would take from you. So they would take a certain percentage 
give to the government what was theirs and keep the remainder for themselves. It was always the same and you knew what to expect. And then you had those who had no limit on what they would tax you. The government only took the amount that the tax collectors uh, were required to give them, but the tax collectors profited a lot. And it was inconsistent and it would change and it would go up and down and you never knew how much they were going to tell you that you owed them when they came to your door. Matthew was known to be one of these greedy tax collectors. Uh, it's not too different to today where we have now laws in place where credit companies cannot charge you more than a certain amount. So credit card companies cannot charge you more than 30% interest. And so what is the typical limit of a credit card? 29.9%. They'll max it right out. That's the very top. But here we are and seeing the greedy tax collector that Jesus befriended sitting at the table with Jesus. Next up we have Thomas. And Thomas did a lot of good things, but he was known to be a doubter, doubting Thomas. You've probably heard that term before. So Thomas, it says this in John 20, verse 24 to 25. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Despite what I've seen in my life, Jesus do, the miracles he's performed, the teaching that he's given, I've seen dead people come back from, from the dead, I've seen blind people see, but unless I get to confirm this in my way, I will never believe. And, and it's kind of an, an ironic thing, Jesus allows it. And, and he's like, okay, if that's the only way you'll believe, give me your hand, give me your finger, let me show you. And, and it's not the first time in scripture that we see people giving God a, almost a, an ultimatum or a, uh, a description of this is the only way I'll know. I'm going to put the fleece out and if it's wet in the morning but the grass is dry, then I will listen to you. I'll know it's you, right? And what happens? The grass is wet and the fleece is dry and the next day say, well, it could have been a coincidence. Let me flip it. Double prove it to me. Make it the other way around where the grass is dry and the fleece is wet. And we'll kind of see how it goes. But God does it. You know, and, and it's one of those weird things where you know, God does allow our doubts to be heard. And he does answer us and approach us in our doubts. And, and it's something of note as well that whenever we see these kinds of things happen, a lot of times it's because of the immaturity of the person in communication with God. It's not something that we should seek to live our lives by big signs and miracles all the time. When we have the word of God and we have the spoken word of God and we have the Holy Spirit's guidance, giving God these tests all the time is kind of an immature way to continue to live our life. But God understands there are times when we need it. And Thomas was a doubter. Next to uh, Thomas, on, actually on the other side here, we're going to place Simon. Uh, Simon was um, a zealot 
And uh, if you have read any of uh, Derek's Bible studies, uh, you may have heard him describe the zealots. They were uh, not very kind towards other people. They had a very specific way that they expected the Messiah to come. And not only uh, did they really mistreat um, unbelievers in, in a kind of a harsh manner, but also people who didn't believe how things would happen exactly like them. You know, today we see denominations that can be kind of rude and mean if you don't believe things happen in exactly the way that, that they say. The zealots were like that. They were an extremist group. And Simon comes from this extreme group of not very caring, have a reputation for being kind of harsh and, um, and to not give him much time for listening. Simon had that reputation. And we have the other James, not the, uh, not the brother of Jesus, but the other James. And there's a, a story that we have in, in the New Testament, which tells us a really ugly side to James's character and, and what Jesus had to do with in, in Mark 10, verse 35, and John is with him. He's also guilty of this. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Imagine that. Coming up to Jesus and telling him, we want to tell you what to do and you should do it for us. And he said to them, what do you want me to do? Have you ever come up to someone and they said, hey, could you do something for me? The good response to that, what do you want me to do? Don't say yes or no until you know what it is that you want, they want you to do. And so what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Like, this is a lot to really go into today, but... One of the things that we learn about uh, James is that he believes himself to be more important than the rest of the disciples. He is arrogant, he thinks he deserves a place of honor, and he is coming to Jesus saying, I think I should be at one side of you and he should be at the other, the rest I don't care where you put them. <laughs> and he has this kind of attitude of just arrogance and superiority and pride that we don't see in a lot of the other disciples in, in this way. And Jesus doesn't even have the authority to decide this. They're asking him to do something that he doesn't even get to choose. Only the Father gets to, to decide those places of honor. So it's quite ironic that the last person that we're going to place at the table is placed by, uh, by putting the, the stories of the, of the New Testament together and by knowing that, that Jesus gave this disciple uh, the bitter herbs and dipped the morsel and offered it to him, 
uh, indicates to us that this person was sitting at the left side of Jesus. And it's Judas. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. For us, perhaps, if we're very honest, the one we might say is the worst of all. Jesus has him sitting in a place of honor at his table. And, and Judas, we know, betrayed Jesus. It's what he's famous for. But he lived his life with Jesus in a way that dishonored him even before the betrayal. Listen to what it says in John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, do you really think he cared about the poor? No, it tells us the next verse. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Jesus entrusted him with the money for the ministry that he was doing with the 12 disciples. And throughout this time, the three years we can assume, Judas was taking from it for himself the whole time. He didn't just betray Jesus once for 30 pieces of silver. He had been doing this his whole life. He had a hard heart that was selfish and greedy and thieving and lying and betraying the entire time that he was with Jesus. And he sits him at the left side in the place of honor at the table. So I want to recap uh, who we have here. We have the inconsistent disciple. We have the coward. We have a deserter. We have an unreliable friend. We have a cynical disciple. Negative Nathan. Arrogant, zealous, betrayer, ruthless, doubter, and greedy. And these are the people that Jesus has chosen to spend time with, not only in his ministry, but at this last supper before he goes to the cross. And it gives us a moment to pause and think about the imperfect people that we have in our lives and perhaps 
the lack of grace and patience that we offer to them. Because on the flip side of these cards could easily be the name of your neighbor, friend, family member. And we have to choose how we're going to respond with these EGR people. You know what EGR is? Extra grace required, exactly right. We have them in our life. If you don't have any EGR people in your life, you are probably the one (laughs) that requires extra grace. So we see Jesus has these 12 people. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't do some great things. I'm, I'm putting a negative light on the disciples this morning to show us who Jesus really was spending his time with at this table. A lot of them did amazing things, went to their death to stand for the gospel of of Jesus Christ, began the church. You know, they, they did amazing things, but they were not perfect. And the people that we have in our life are not perfect. And we are not perfect. And we have to approach seasons like this, not with a mask to pretend like everything's fine, but to approach the seasons of life with patience and grace and with love. And this is uh, what it said about what Jesus did next. It said in John 13, it said, During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had not come from God and was going back to God rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied it around his waist then he poured water into a basin and began washing the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him this is six days after the perfume had been uh, anointed onto his feet and, you know, when we read that passage and we, and we, and we read that the, the whole room was filled with that smell, this perfume was so expensive and so valuable that the perfume on Jesus' feet that he was wearing while he was washing the disciples' feet was normally reserved for the very richest of people. In fact, a lot of times, this is the kind of perfume that would have not only been reserved for rich people, but for royalty. And so when Jesus was going to the cross, he literally smelled like a king. As the soldier pierced his side with a spear, he had the aroma of royalty in his nostrils. This is an amazing thing that he has been shown love like this, Jesus. He is now showing this love for his disciples, and serving the people who do not really deserve it. So this is who Jesus was with when he gave thanks. But what did he give thanks for? So we're going to look in. And first of all, we see that he, he gave thanks for the food. He did give thanks for the food. It says um, that he, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, the bread, broke it and gave it to them saying, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. So he did bless the food. It's not the first time Jesus has blessed food in his ministry. Uh, One other time was the feeding of the 5,000. 
um, and it told us that ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So Jesus is blessing the food, but there's something, and we, we talk about this when we sit at a table a lot of time with other believers, is will somebody bless the food? Normally we're saying, will somebody bless the food quickly because I'm hungry, I want to eat. But when we say, will somebody bless the food, what we mean today and what Jesus did are not the same thing. So the Jewish tradition of a blessing was not to thank God for an item or an object and that's be the end of that prayer. There were three parts to a blessing that Jesus would have learned how to pray. And that was thank you for the thing, thank you for the function of that thing for me, and thank you for the function of this thing for your purposes. Are you tracking me? Okay, let me, give, let me give you some examples. So it's not just like, thank you for this house. This is an awesome house. It's the best house on the neighborhood and all my friends are jealous of this house. That's not what we're thankful for if we're going to bless the house in the way that Jesus prayed. It would be, God, thank you for this house. It provides me shelter and warmth and it allows me to offer hospitality to others. That, that is a blessing on your house. That's how to be thankful in the way that Jesus was thankful. It's not just thank you for this car. It is a sporty car. It will smoke your car any day. It is thank you for this car. It gets me to work every day so that I can provide for my family and be generous to other people. It, it's not just thank you for this food. I love tacos. <laughs> it's thank you for this food. It gives nourishment to my body so that I have the energy to love and care for people in the way that you've called me to. There's, I'm not the end result of my thanks. It, it's not about me. And, and this blessing he gives when he, when he breaks the bread is, is not making it just about himself. But there's a second part of this. So he, he says that he blessed the, the food, he blessed the bread, and then he gave thanks. Okay, there's a second part to it. Uh, so uh, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them and said, take this as my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. So there was these two different moments of blessing the food and giving thanks. So what was he giving thanks for after he had already blessed the food? Well, I think if we keep reading, we, we learn that he was giving thanks for what was about to happen at the cross. In verse 23, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of a covenant, which is poured out for many. The, the word thanks uh, is uh, eucharistio. It, it comes from the word charis. So charis literally means grace. Anybody ever asked you to say grace at the table? It's kind of where it comes from. It's just, but it's not really the right idea. The idea here was he was thankful for the grace that these knuckleheads are going to receive. And that you knuckleheads need to receive. And me for certain needs to receive. 
He's giving thanks for what's going to happen at the cross despite the agony and the grief that he is going to experience in the build-up to it. He is giving thanks. He gives thanks despite his company. He gives thanks despite his circumstances. And, And the Bible tells us in another place, in Hebrews 12, that not only does he give thanks... But he counts it as joy of what he did on the cross. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Ha, the right hand side of God. The disciples had asked where they could sit is the very place that the Father has reserved for Jesus. And, it, and there's this just amazing idea here as we look at this left side and this right side as, as Jesus allows Judas to his left side at this landmark moment in history that he is offering grace to anyone who will believe and accept it. And, you know, we have this, this opportunity uh, this week to go into this season being the kind of person that displays patience and love and grace to the people who we find it hardest to do that for. And, and I know one of the great freedom groups we do here uh, is, is called Boundaries. And, and there's a, there are times where for us to learn how to relate to people in, in the right and healthy way, we have to put boundaries in our life because we have allowed people to mistreat us and, and we have to you know, figure out how to live in, in a functional, healthy way. But in the book, Boundaries, it talks about this. Boundaries are rarely there to be temporary. And sometimes it's while we get healthy and while we communicate something to somebody else But sometimes I think we can be in danger of using boundary as an excuse for impatience or unforgiveness or a lack of faith. I'm not going to talk to that person because I have put a boundary in place. And it's a good season for us to check our motive. I'm not saying remove all boundaries. I'm saying check your motive. Check your heart. Is your heart still in the right place for why that boundary was there <laughs> with your friend, with your neighbor, with your family? And, and, to, and to ask yourself, God, do I need to show more grace and more love? Or do I need to serve the people who I struggle with the most? And how can I do that? Ask God to help you. But secondly, uh, in this, this week, as we give thanks, and we give thanks not just for the item and for my benefit, but for the purposes of God, and we, we try to do that. We try and do that with the people that are hard to, to do it with. The thing that we need to remember the most and be thankful for the most is what Jesus did on the cross. And today, uh, we are going to take communion together and have a moment to just reflect on that, the thing that more than anything else we should be thankful for in this season. And this is a time, a lot, of, a lot of us get together with people and ask the question, what are you thankful for? 
And perhaps we should ask, why are you thankful for it? It's a better question. But when somebody asks you that question, this is one of the best opportunities you may ever have to share the gospel and to tell them, the thing I am most thankful for in my life is that despite me being arrogant or greedy, (laughs) imperfect, God has forgiven me. What he did on the cross has allowed me a relationship with him that will go into eternity. And you can have that too. This is a great season for sharing the gospel. And today we get a moment to reflect on that ourselves. Watch this video. All right, amen. We are going to take the Lord's Supper now. And uh, we don't normally do this on Sunday mornings. In the 15 years I've been here, I don't recall doing it on a Sunday morning. Uh, But the elders are going to begin passing out the first uh, element, the, the bread, and uh, I want to just say a few things before we, we take this. Uh, normally, we do this on a night of worship because of the, uh, differ, the differing audiences that come to that. Uh, the Lord's Supper is meant for believers, for Christians, and typically uh, the night of worships are uh, more heavily attended by church members and people who are, are really committed to the Christian faith. I mean, coming to an hour-long worship service is, uh, you know, it, re- it requires, I think, a love for worship. And so uh, we want to recognize that the Sunday morning is a bit different, that the audience is a bit more diverse, and, and there is no shame in passing the plate and not taking it. It is meant for uh, Christians. Paul warns against taking it in an unworthy manner. Uh, one, of, one of the ways in which that would happen is by taking it as a non-Christian He does say in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Sounds like a lot of Thanksgiving meals, doesn't it? (laughs) You're coming together for the worse, not the better. He says, from the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. The, The Corinthian church had a lot of people that had factions and divisions and there were problems in their midst. And Paul chides them here in this letter. He says that when you come together to take the supper, you do so in an unworthy manner, namely because there's a lack of unity here in the body. Uh, Now, he's talking, to be clear, to the Corinthian church, certainly not to city on a hill. Amen? Good. Uh, But he does say, you know, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk, by the way, not getting drunk off of Welch's grape juice. Um, That does indicate, in fact, that there was wine involved in the early church for this. Uh, He says, you don't have houses to eat and drink in, do you? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So these are harsh words to a church that was really abusing this practice. And so we want to we always want to encourage you that when you take the supper, that you do so with a heart that has been uh, very carefully discerned, that there is nothing in your conscience that would prevent you from doing so. For if there is, it is okay to, again, abstain. That is a sign of spiritual maturity. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, which would have been unleavened. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may eat. Father, we thank you for the broken body of your son, Jesus, for our iniquity, for our sin on the cross, beaten, bruised, broken, that we might have life and have it eternally. We thank you for that. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The other element that we observe is the, uh, the wine or the juice, um, which represents the blood, the blood of Christ. Uh, we 
Our message, the Christian message, is a bloody one. It's a bloody message. It's a violent message, one of, of, of brokenness and bleeding and death. Uh, and this is necessary. Uh, the, the Bible says that the, the wages of sin is death, that Christ had to die to pay the, the wages of sin on our behalf. And, and this involves blood, the blood that, that cleanses us from sin, that makes us clean and new. And it's really an image of something that happens in the book of Exodus, which is what Jesus and the disciples, when they sat at a table like this, would have been remembering the Passover meal was a, 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 a memory meal, a commemoration, if you will, of something that God did in the midst of His people in the book of Exodus in Egypt several, several hundreds of years prior to this time in the New Testament, where God delivers them out of Egypt and out of the bondage of slavery under the evil king Pharaoh. And uh, if you remember in the story, they take the unblemished lamb and they they sacrifice it, they take the blood of the lamb and they put it above the doorpost of every home so that when the 10th plague was unleashed, the angel of death that came to take the firstborn son of every home, that he would see the blood of the lamb and that he would pass over that home, saving that family from death. And in the same way, the blood of Jesus covers us as Christians, that God's wrath against sin His judgment against sin passes over us, that rather than seeing our sins, our failures, our transgressions, that He only sees the the perfect righteousness of Jesus in our place. That doesn't mean that we're we're, we're never going to sin again, but in the same way that, that Chris talked about how Jesus invites imperfect people to the table, He invites you to His table as well if you are indeed a believer that though you will wrestle with the flesh until the second coming of Christ, you are invited to eat and drink with him and remember the broken body and the shed blood on your behalf. Paul says that in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may drink. Father, we recognize that the blood of Jesus makes us clean, that it washes us free of sin. And so how we thank you. We thank you for his sacrifice, his life broken on behalf of us, that we might stand here in perfect righteousness, not because of us, not because of anything we've done, but because of him who goes before us to die, that we might have life. We love you, and we thank you for that. We thank you for this gift that you've given the church to remember and to be blessed by it. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. I am going to uh, dismiss you and and just ask you to leave maybe a bit quietly, a a bit more contemplatively um, as you think about this. This is a a visual that is intended to uh, really make you think about and, and and, and, and almost feel the weight of what has been done on your behalf. And it is a good thing to remember, although, um, although dark and violent, uh, it produces life and light, and it gives mercy and grace. And so we're grateful for that. We're going to come back next week, and we're going to talk about our need for the light of Jesus that came into the world almost 2,000 years ago as we begin our Advent sermon series. I'm looking forward to having you here. God bless you. We'll see you next time.